I'm Christy Hemingway, host of Ed Curation, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Barbara R. Blackburn. That's right. She's back and she has dedicated her life to helping educators understand rigor and what it looks like across the content areas in all our classrooms. That's right. Her books are practical and easy to read and are easy to put to use in your classroom tomorrow. Today, we are focused on talking about her two books, Rigor in the K-5 through Math and Science Classroom and Rigor in the 6-12 through 12 Math and Science Classroom. So much to learn today. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go... Do you know someone who hasn't listened to Teaching Learning Leading K-12? Hmm? What do you think? It would be so awesome if you would share my podcast with them. You know, a family member, a friend, a colleague, a relative, you know, whatever you got going there. Um, he just said, hey, you listen to podcasts. You don't? Oh, you should. And I got one for you. It's called Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. The intro and outro were created and performed by Brian K. Buffington. You can find more about Brian at briankbuffington.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for his newsletter. Thanks, Brian. Cool, huh? It's the Education Podcast, your favorite show. With lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, uh, ah, uh, with Dot Stimoletto. Barbara R. Blackburn, named a top 30 global guru in education, has dedicated her life to raising the level of rigor and motivation for professional educators and students alike. What differentiates Barbara's over 30 books are easily executable concrete examples based on decades of experience as a teacher, professor, and consultant. And, uh, Pretty much before we know it, she'll be at 40 or 50 books. And uh, so (laughs) Barbara's dedication to education was inspired in her early years by her parents. Her father's doctorate and lifetime career as a professor taught her the importance of professional training. Her mother's career as a school secretary shaped Barbara's appreciation of the effort all staff play in the education of every student. Barbara has taught early childhood, elementary, middle, and high school students and has served as an educational consultant for three publishing companies. She holds a master's degree in school administration and was certified as a teacher and school principal in North Carolina. She received her Ph.D. in curriculum and teaching from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In 2006, she received an award for outstanding junior professor at Winthrop University. She left her position at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte to write and speak full-time. In addition to speaking at uh, state, national, and international conferences, she She regularly presents workshops for teachers and administrators in elementary, middle, and high schools. Her workshops are lively and engaging and filled with practical information. Her most popular seminars include Rigor is Not a Four-Letter Word, which will always be one of my favorite titles of anything. (laughs) Rigorous schools and classrooms leading the way. Rigorous assessments, differentiating instruction without lessening rigor in your classroom. Motivation plus engagement plus rigor equals student success. Rigor for students with special needs. Motivating struggling students. And rigor in the remote learning classroom. Barbara can be reached through her website, barbablackburnonline.com. Today, we're focused on Barbara's books, Rigor in the K-5 through Math and Science Classroom and Rigor in the 6-12 through Math and Science Classroom. Barbara, welcome back. Glad to have you on the show again and say hi to everyone. Oh, hi. And I tell you what, you always make me sound so fancy. I appreciate it so much. I just love being here with you. Well, 
thank you so much. And I enjoy being here with you. So thank you for coming back. And uh, I tried, but you're the one who did all that stuff. So, uh, hey, <laughs> kudos to you. The uh, good stuff. So, uh, Barbara, before we get into your books here, you, you got the rigor in the K through 5 and, uh, and 6 through 12 math and science classrooms. Could you talk about this statement? To build a rigorous classroom environment, we need to encourage students' intrinsic motivation so they are not totally dependent on outside rewards. Oh, it is so interesting you pull that out because I think that is one of the foundational concepts that is related to rigor that we don't pay enough attention to. And it's this notion of motivation because, uh, you know, if students don't seem motivated, then how are you going to motivate them to work at more challenging levels? And so this this idea of motivation as a part of the environment really is critical. And what happens is that far too often we uh, rely on extrinsic motivation, points, tokens, prizes, grades. Um, And when that happens, students become less intrinsically motivated. We can get too focused on the extrinsic. And I will tell you, there's plenty to debate about out there about we should never use extrinsic rewards versus we can use some. I'm more of a middle ground kind of person where I say use them, but be careful how much, except that I know for the long haul, we've got to focus on intrinsic motivation. If students are not internally motivated, they're not going to stick to it. I don't care what you're asking them to do. I don't care if it's easy or hard. If they're not intrinsically motivated, it just becomes jumping through the hoops. And so just real quick, two minutes on motivation. If you want to encourage students' intrinsic motivation, there are two factors. There's value and there's success. Students are more personally motivated when they see value in what they are doing and when they see successful, when they feel successful. Now, the feel successful, that one's pretty easy. You go, okay, I've got to create some opportunities for them to be successful. The value can be a little bit different in that there's more than one way for students to see value. Um, Some students see it through relevance, but that can differ depending on the grade level. You know, if you've got high school students, they care about chemical mixtures because maybe he or she wants to be a hairdresser and they're going to have to uh, color someone's hair. But if I've got a first grader for them, it may be um, that um, that student has two dogs named Hannah and Percy. And I I use those two names about dogs in my math word problem that includes dogs. And so my first grader gets excited because they see the relevance because it was about their dogs. So value is is relevance, but sometimes we have to teach something, Steve, and I know you have seen this. We have to teach something, and there is no relevance to it other than the fact that it is on the test. That is why we are teaching it. And what do you do then? Well, students are also motivated when they see value through activities. So if they're doing something, they're more motivated than if they're sitting and getting for for the most part. So you can have relevance, you can have activities, but you also have relationship. Uh, Students are intrinsically motivated uh, if they have a good relationship with you. Uh, So if they don't, they're probably not going to be motivated to do anything in your class because they just flat out don't like you. And you got to do everything you can do, you know, smile, remember their name, um, you know, show interest in what they're interested in, uh, go to a ball game they're in, whatever you got. Um, and then if, if it doesn't work, you got to let that go, but you do need to make an effort. 
So the short version of intrinsic motivation, which, oh my gosh, I have an entire book just on motivating struggling learners. So the short version, though, is that students are intrinsically motivated by value and success. That's awesome, man. It was it's hard not to say something when you talked about sometimes they just flat out don't like you. You know, it's like I, Yeah, sometimes they just don't, okay? And you gotta let that go. But do your best. I mean, you know, at least try. Um, and then if it just doesn't work, because there are students that just won't work, then you gotta just learn to let that go. Still do what you can do, but let it go. It's so it's such a powerful statement right there because it's it too often because it, I've observed some adults sometimes that you really go, did you like you know, fail the the bedside manner class or something like this? I mean, I, I know we're not like doctors, but at the same time, we kind of are where you, you should have some sort of uh, personality flow happening there and uh, and uh, to help them take the, the content being the medicine down and all sing together, you know, that we're all happy, you know. But I, I, I just think it's funny because some some adults just don't know how to connect <laughs> nor make them like them. <laughs> no, and I would tell you that intrinsic motivation is intrinsic motivation. So everything I just said about students is also true about adults. If you're a principal or superintendent or a college professor, you know, if you want to motivate and build motivation so that other people that are your stakeholders, whatever they are, are intrinsically motivated, you need to tap into value and success. And you know, it really is true. I do this same piece when I'm working with leaders. I talk about exactly the same thing about how they can connect with teachers and parents. This is awesome. This is, we could do the whole <laughs> interview on I this, know. but, but I, I'm not going <laughs> to, not this time. Well, maybe down the road. Uh, thank you. That's, that's awesome and powerful. Cause right, right there, you just took a detour to, to Albuquerque. That was like, uh, that's sort of old cartoon reference there, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, um, you know, they have to find something else then. If, if, if it isn't developing relationships that's going to help you, then it's the other thing, providing the value. Right. and the Yeah, I, I love that. So, all right. So tell us why you wrote these two books. I mean, rigor in the K through five and six through 12 math and science classroom. What, what made you go, Dad, these, these are, I need to do this. You know, it, this one has an interesting story. I know you think I always have an interesting story with each book, but this is true not only for the math and science that we're talking about today, but it's why I did the language arts and social studies books, because I have parallel K-5 and 6-12 language arts and social studies. I was getting a lot of people who just kept saying, we want more examples. They would read rigor is not a four-letter word. They would have the rigor toolkit. They would have the differentiation, and they just wanted more, and they wanted subject-specific pieces. So what I did, um, I was like, okay, you know, I like this and I can do this, but if I'm going to do it, I want to make it a little, uh, a little more interesting. So I tapped into two dear friends of mine who are former students of mine, and they are co-authors on the books. So on the K-5 and 612 math science, Abigail Armstrong who is a former math teacher and is now a college professor. Um, she was made of honor at my wedding. Uh, I told her, I said, now, Abigail, if I'm going to write a math science book, you're going to have to do it with me. You'll have to figure it out. And she was like, oh, what am I going to do? She said, you write books all the time and I don't do that. And I said, I'll frame it out and then we'll work on it together. And because the, uh, the books are parallel in terms of format, it's just that we swap out the examples. But, but the content in, in many cases is exactly the same um, in terms of, you know, what 
what is rigor is the same no matter the grade level, but then we swap out what those examples look like. And she and I uh, spent about a year and a half. I think it took us a year and a half to write both of them. Um, and then my co-author, Missy Miles, and I did the same thing with language arts, social studies. And because they taught these subject areas, I have taught these subject areas, but it's been a while. And because they are fresher to it and they're closer to it, they really brought just an interesting eye to the books. And so, uh, you know, it's always people always want to know what my favorite book is. And uh, my favorite one is always going to be the one that my dad and I wrote together before he died. So that one just that just happens that way and nothing else will ever touch it. But these rank right on up there because it was really interesting not only to get their feedback and have them contribute to the book, but to see them grow as they wrote their books. And, and even now uh, I talked to somebody and she's like, can you tell me who, who Abigail Armstrong is? I mean, like she's famous as you and I called Abigail and told her and Abigail just laughed. And so that brings a different twist to these books. That's cool. That's very cool. (laughs) And it's, it's always a lot of fun, you know? Yeah. And it's so neat because you have these, because you have these different experiences from these different books because you've written quite a few and, uh, and involve people who are your, used to be your students and, and uh, um, it's just, just has to bring a whole nother, um, tone, another, you know, I keep wanting to use writing terms like, you know, <laughs> setting and stuff like that. I mean, because it's, it's cool. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a, a, a fictional novel, but it's not. <laughs> so it, it's, it's neat. So it, it is, it's very interesting because both of them were students in my master's program. So they were, they were teaching full time when they were uh, in my class and both of them you know, sort of reflected back. Uh, I remember Abigail was talking about, she said, you know, I would never be here if I hadn't been in your master's program uh, because she also got her doctorate after she left. And I was like, really? She said, yeah, do you remember that first time I came in your office and I told you I wasn't going to do this? I was going to go do something else. And you talked me into staying. And she said, and look, look at all that's happened. And that's what that's what happens. Yeah. And to me, that's what teachers do is you you grow your students. So I don't have my own you know, fifth graders or ninth graders. But what I do have is I have former students who are teachers. And anytime I can get them tapped into writing an article with me or doing anything, uh, some of them do consulting for me when I can't do a, do a consulting trip. Uh, you know, it's interesting to watch them grow. And so these books reflect a growth that you might not see otherwise because it's their growth. I love it. That is so awesome. And that's 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 just just cool as you see them doing uh, uh, different things and expanding what they're doing because that role of the teacher, it's, it mm-hmm. comes through. That's cool. So cool. I, I, let's kind of start delving into the books themselves. So, okay. so in chapter three, expectations, you share some thoughts about behaviors that reflect high expectations. Could you talk about the role that expectations place in the rigorous classroom? Because I think sometimes um, we're not, some adults don't realize how important it can be. Yeah, and there's really two key types of expectations that uh, teachers uh, can have. The first one is behavioral expectations, and I'm not talking about behavior or misbehavior, okay? This is what I'm talking about. Robert Marzano has done a lot of work with this. Uh, I really, I, I just, the way he framed this was so powerful to me, because what he talks about is that if we have high expectations for a student, 
then we treat them differently than if we have low expectations for a student. And uh, so he frames out examples of these, which is what's really in the book. We, we delve into this a good bit. Um, and so, for example, let's say that uh, you are in my class and that you are a struggling student. You know, it's not that you're not a, a, a good kid, but you struggle instructionally. You never raise your hand. You don't do your homework or you do a little bit of it. You're just always a half a step behind everybody. Well, then I've also got Tomas in my classroom, and Tomas is a great student. Oh, my word. He is always ahead of the game. He not only does his homework, he goes over and above. When he asks a question, it tends to extend what I've already taught. I mean, he is so sharp. Well, part of what Marzano has talked about is that when you come in at the start of the school year, I... Uh, as a brand, you know, as a new teacher of, of you, whether I'm a new teacher or have taught for 30 years, I have high expectations for both of you. I believe that both of you can learn, will learn, and I will help you do so. And I am ready to go. Well, what happens is that over time, Tomas just exceeds those expectations. I mean, he's always sharper than I expected. He always does more than I thought he would do. And my expectations for him just go up and up and up. But for you, you don't raise your hand. If you do, you're real uncertain. And maybe you're just asking me to repeat something I've already said three times. And I'm just frustrated with that. And you don't turn in your homework. And, you know, you just you just you just aren't there. And finally, one day I just turned to another teacher and say, you know what? <sighs> Steve is a good kid. And I guess, you know what? He's probably doing the best he can. Bless his heart. Which is Southern for low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> that is what that is. That is low expectations. Yes. Because I've just said that's all you can do. It's <laughs> crazy. You're right. And we do it all the time. And so what happens, though, is this is the interesting part. Okay. Behavior-wise, when my expectations change, I begin to treat you differently. So with Tomas, I give him more wait time. Because if I give him wait time, he'll come up with the answer. I don't give you wait time because you don't know the answer anyway, so I'm not going to bother and waste anybody's time. I will give him more praise and positive feedback because there's more to praise. I'm really struggling with you a little bit, okay? I probably stand in closer proximity and give him more eye contact because you're uncomfortable with those things. And so what happens is the more I do those behaviors, then the wider the gap becomes on the expectations, and so when we talk about behaviors and high expectations, what we don't realize is we're talking about hours. And that is a really big deal that we don't talk enough about. Boy, have you got that right. That's, that's something that, because uh, first of all, a lot of adults would uh, say, what do you mean I need to talk about my behaviors? <laughs> and we don't even realize we're doing them. I, as a teacher, I remember I did these things. I had Todd. There was a period of time, about four months, I taught sixth grade. Todd, he was the worst kid in the room. He was awful. He was bigger than me. I was scared of him. I put him back row, back corner, as far away from me as I could get him. And as long as he left me alone, I left him alone. But you know what I was doing? I was writing him off. Exactly. <clears throat> and so that's crazy. So we don't talk about those. Now, the second type of expectations we do talk about, and that's the instructional expectations. And they are important. But I wanted to spend more time, truthfully, on the other because we don't talk about them as much. But your instructional expectations are things like the uh, the tasks, 
that you are asking students to do. Uh, right now, I am spending a tremendous amount of time with districts on this, where we're actually looking at tasks that teachers have created and figuring out how to improve the rigor. Because let me give you a high school example. I know we don't have time to do everything, but we'll, we'll do a high school one real quickly. This one happens to be science. Okay, instead of just having students do an experiment on thermodynamics, listen to how these teachers reworked it. We've been discussing thermodynamics. Choose one of the three systems, opened, closed, or isolated. In your group, identify a research question based on our discussion, but one that we have not yet fully explored. Next, design and conduct an investigation to answer the question, write a report in which you analyze your data, draw conclusions, and cite your evidence. Now, think about the difference there, Steve, of, you know, just do an experiment and actually have to create their own. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, so let's do an elementary one because I don't want everybody okay. to go, oh, she didn't even talk elementary. <laughs> okay, so we'll switch to math. This one's real easy. It's called a three-statement method, okay? Let's say that you gave students a problem and several of them came up to the board and solved them and they solved them different ways. They may have come up with the same solution, but they solved them using different methods. Okay, so here's the three-statement method. Number one, the best attempt is attempt number. This is because, and the reason the other attempts are not as strong. So if I'm looking at three, then I have to figure out which one's really the best way to solve it, be able to give you my evidence for that, and then explain why the others are not as strong. Again, so much stronger than just solving a word problem. You got that right. There's a little bit more thinking involved. Yes. <laughs> Entirely. De I mean, I'm having so much fun working with schools these days where, you know, I'm sort of working with a train the trainer model, but the teachers are crafting tasks or giving me tasks that already exist. And I'm actually personally reviewing them and giving that feedback. So not only are they getting feedback for how to improve, and I, I, I think out of all I've done this year, and this year counts last year because we're just starting again, I don't think I've ever had anybody totally rewrite something. I maybe give them a revision. You know, I say, what if you added this or what if you did this? But they so appreciate getting the feedback from somebody who's got that bigger picture of rigor. That's awesome. That's awesome. The, uh, you know, and, and just the examples that you gave, the th it, it requires you to think. So even if, so if you tried to fake your way through it as a student, <laughs> by the way, you see where the way where my brain goes, you, you can't because it, you, you're taking just as much time and energy to figure out how you could fake the answer to, to make it look, you might as well spend time on it. <laughs> so right. I like right. that. I like that a lot. So, so let's skip chapters. In the, in the chapter on support and scaffolding, you share practical tools that a teacher could use to help students be successful. This is such a powerful chapter. Could you share a little about what supporting and scaffolding look like? Oh, gosh, we cover, uh, and again, the format's the same, no matter the grade level, it's just examples are different, but we really do five big areas, and we're not going to have time to talk about all of them, but we talk about modeling, using visuals, how to deepen understanding, 
creating a toolbox so you've got more than one. And then we specifically address special needs students. Um, and, you know, we could we could so do all of them. I love, I would tell you, the, with the visual tools, we spend some time on graphic organizers. And what I love about graphic organizers that we sometimes forget is how to use the visual to reinforce the content. So there's a sample graphic organizer in the 612 book on the Pythagorean theorem, and it includes right triangles. And so it, it cements for students the idea that the Pythagorean theorem is about right triangles. And we don't do that. We don't think about that. And so you've got, you've got some examples like that. The, uh, the one I probably I am, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about uh, explicit modeling because everybody knows that we should model. But here's the thing. They think modeling is stand up, show them how to do it. Uh, maybe that's through think alouds that we address. But, you know, I'm just going to show you show you how to do this. Well, there's actually research that is very specific as to how effective modeling takes place. So if you're a John Hattie fan and you're going, oh, he talks all about explicit modeling. He does. But he talks about research based explicit modeling. He doesn't mean stand up there and give a clear explanation. So when you really look at it, you there's eight eight essential components. We can't get through all of them, but you you describe it before you model it. And before you do that, you break it down into critical features. And then you have to incorporate multisensory uh, instruction. And when you model, you don't just model an example, you also model non-examples. And then you're going to work through a queuing system. So when you start looking at what's in there, um, a lot of times you may go, oh, I do modeling. I can skip that section. Take a good look at it because it's, there's some pretty explicit information in there that may add to what you're already doing as a teacher that would take the modeling you're already doing and kick it up a level. Excellent. Excellent. They, uh, and it, you know, it is uh, something you just said about uh, if the teachers, I mean, you have to take, want to do or pursue to the level to get the kids there, I guess is my point. And it does take time. So you can't, you know, you don't want to just say, get caught in that, uh, that uh, thought about, uh, oh, I can do this, or I've already done this. Well, have you really taken a close look to see if you're really doing it <laughs> or if you need to change the way you do it? So I, I like that. That's, uh, it's cool what you're asking right there. So we're talking about, so uh, good stuff. I, you know, uh, Barbara, could you share a little bit about this comment from chapter five? And I know that I'm just kind of taking a couple of things just from different uh, chapters. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I wrote that, you know, <laughs> or, that's okay. Nope. I know I wrote it. So that's good. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, could you share a little about this comment from chapter five in a science classroom, students discussing instructional concepts using academic vocabulary enhances student learning. Okay. The only thing I'm going to do in case that is exactly what I said without saying anything around it is that is also true in a math classroom. Okay. So this is not just science uh, in any classroom. Learning is enhanced when academic vocabulary is used. And you know this. If you are a teacher, you know this. There is a difference between students having a conversation and between them having academic discourse. I can have a conversation about the football game last night. If I'm actually going to talk, talk about biomes and what happens with different biomes and what can we predict about that, then I'm going to have to use some academic vocabulary for that to happen. And it's immediately going to raise the level of discourse. And so that really happens, uh, again, with any subject area. I mean, and, and I would tell you that in a math classroom, 
you know, how do you even discuss math without using math vocabulary? I mean, how do you do that? Science teachers are probably saying that's true for us too. Um, And I wouldn't argue with you, but when we don't focus on academic vocabulary, then we do let our students down to a certain degree. And that's why we have to teach, intentionally teach academic vocabulary. We need to post it around on the walls. Um, You know, if you've got um, English language learners, if you've got students with special needs, I would tell you to fold a piece of paper over, put the word on the outside and inside put a picture or a sentence to give them some context and use that for your word wall. Very effective for students who are struggling. Um, and, you know, after teaching it, then give them opportunities to use it. And one of the favorite things that I talk about in the books is we give you some questioning prompts, uh, that you can use so that when students are having a discussion and you want them to be asking each other questions, they've got some questions to get them started. So that's a really critical piece there. That's that. That's awesome. I, you know, I think that, uh, and I, and I like the fact that you, <laughs> you made sure that this is not exclusive of, uh, <laughs> I was like, Whoa, what do you mean? I surely didn't say that didn't apply to math. No, the, uh, but, uh, the, the point is, is that I think sometimes we get, we get so caught up in, you know, as adults, you're like, okay, maybe I need to change this up a little bit so they get it better. And instead of, you know, it, if we're going to make it rigorous, we've got to get them understanding the vocabulary as opposed to just replacing vocabulary with other right. words and then, and then never bringing them back up. And, uh, and I think that's what that speaks to loudly because it happens a lot. I mean, it, kids are like anyone. If we can get you to, you know, do what we want you to do instead, you know, then that, we're good with it, but it may not help us when we get down the road. Um, even as recently as, you know, like as current, as soon as next week or something. And I, and I think that this just speaks volumes to that, which is the importance of how can you talk these, this content without using the vocabulary of the content, which are mm-hmm. academic terms. But students do it all the time. Students do it all the time. I can take you to classrooms all over the world where they're doing that. They're just not rigorous. Right. They're not. And that's what's they, it, they sit, they, they're proud of themselves, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but what have you done now? So now, the kid thinks they've done well, and instead they really don't get it. They don't know what the – if they don't understand those terms that they need to be able to use, then they're going to miss out. So that's uh, important there. Um, you know, all right, so I'm going to pull out something else because this is something else you talk about. What is understanding at a deep level? Because I think people think they know what it is, but do they really? Well, I think we've already done a couple of examples, okay? So let's just do a couple of others because uh, when I gave you classroom examples of high expectations, that is understanding at a deep level. So let's look at um, let's look at a high school one, middle high school one, and then we'll come back to an elementary one, okay? Good. So we'll do math for the middle and high school, okay? This one's linear equations. Now, some of you are now going, oh, my gosh, What's she going to do? She's going to make us do 20. No, I'm not. Remember, rigor is not about quantity. Okay? It's going to be about quality. So that's why that understanding at a deep level. So take a look at this one. Okay? Review the three linear equations, each of which represents a real life situation, as well as their solutions. So you're being given three linear equations that are already solved. And they're pretty high level. They've got a real life situation. Now, here's what the students do. Determine which, if any, of the solved problems are incorrect. 
if there is an equation that is solved incorrectly, justify why it is incorrect, solve it correctly, and explain how you know it is now correct. So think about it. It's very similar to the one that I gave you a little bit earlier. That is not solve three linear equations because honest to goodness, if you can solve linear equations, you can solve linear equations. Right. I'm taking it to an entirely different level. All right. So now let's try a science one. Uh, let's go upper elementary with this one. We'll do something a little different. We'll do upper elementary. Okay. We've been studying past catastrophic events that have affected the earth and life on earth, such as earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, weather devastations, and asteroid contact. Okay, here's what students now have to do. That's what we've been studying in class. And this one's going to take time. This is not a do this in class in five minutes kind of thing. Okay, students must predict the next catastrophic event that is likely to occur. They must base their prediction on research from a minimum of three sources other than the classroom text. Additionally, they must justify their prediction using their research and real-life examples and provide information as to how, if at all, people could prevent or lessen the effects of the catastrophe. And they are probably doing that in small groups. That's deep understanding, Steve, those two examples. I love it. I love it. That's that's awesome. And it's uh, you notice that it's, uh, you know, it's asking them to, th- uh, you know, it's asking them to think. And I think that's... Uh, um, so important for uh, for adults to understand that we gotta we need to get them to that level for them to truly show some understanding or get to some understanding of their their content area. So good stuff. I, you know, rigor in the K through five math and science classroom and uh, rigor in the uh, six through twelve math and science classroom include awesome examples of what you're talking about as well as e resources. Could you talk about why it's important not to skip over those e resources? Well. They are the ones that my co-author and I, plus uh, some other folks we had review it, saw as the ones that would be just the most practical. And I hate to say that because all of them are practical and they all say that. But they're also the ones that are on my website. So you can download them and you're not trying to figure out how to copy them out of a book. So I think they're helpful for that. But they are ones that really are pretty much click and go you know, print them out and you ought to be able to run with them. Gotcha. And I think, you know, I think one of the things that's important for the teacher to know is that your, your books come with resources. I mean, they, they have these resources for a reason. It's not something that, you know, it's, it's not something you just kind of like, Oh, I don't need to look at that or something like that. It's like, yeah, you should, because here's, this is provided for you to be able to understand what level you can get. And you know, your, your questions or your, um, your work up to that, uh, up to this level. And uh, here's, a, here's what it looks like. And I think that's awesome. Oh, and it's a big deal. One time I didn't have e-resources in a book and I got complaints. <laughs> it was like, oh my gosh. I mean, people love, uh, you're right, I've written over 30 books. And and the power is how practical they are and all of the examples. Uh, because I tell the story of my classroom. I tell the story of other teachers' classrooms. And so you don't want to skip over those examples. I mean, it, it makes a difference. It's going to make your job easier if you can learn from others. So much so. That's so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's one of the things that if you allow yourself to learn, which sounds funny, <laughs> but that's what this is about, is that we constantly have to have professional growth. We need to, to grow our, our understanding of how to work with children because children are, are uh, different and the same and, uh, and not so much this, you know, they're just all, 
they come in all different shapes and packages. I guess that's where I'm going. And you need you to be able to get right. them all to a high, a high level and deep level of understanding. And in order to do that, we have to learn how to do that. And uh, um, you providing examples like that and being practical helps us get uh, our, our, what we do in our profession to, um, to, the, to, to ensure that we're at those upper levels. So I think that's cool. So one of the things that I got to ask you is, could you share a little bit about the difference between a rigorous assessment and a non-rigorous classroom assessment? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we've already done some of that. When I have given you examples of tasks, those are assessments. And so the ones I've been giving you were rigorous tasks. So you have those. Uh, what I would also tell you is, for example, um, let's say that I'm doing true-false questions, okay, because those are still out there and that's fine. People say, you're going to tell me to not use them. No, I'm not. I am going to tell you they're a guess. Okay. So, you know, they're not as rigorous as they should be. So if you're using true false, <clears throat> then what I would tell you is that you should require students. If it is false, they have to rewrite it as true. And if it's true, they have to explain why they know it's true. Okay? That's going to kick that up a little bit. Um, let's say you're going to use, uh, maybe an essay question because essays are always good. Um, and a lot of times uh, with uh, math classrooms, I have teachers tell me, I don't, I don't, you know, what are you really talking about with an essay question for math? Well, essay questions for math are something like this. Write a rule for what happens when you multiply a one digit number by 10. So they have to write the rule to start with. Now explain why your rule will always work. So that's more of an essay question as opposed to just a basic, you know, solve the problem. So you also want, if you're going to use multiple choice, and there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion about this in the research world. Um, when it comes to rigor, I'm going to fall on one side of that argument. Uh, if you're going to use multiple choice and you've got A, B, and C, I also think it's appropriate to write all of the above, none of the above, a and B, B and C, A and C, because they have to think more than just guessing which one it is. And there are people who say that makes it too complicated. I really believe it makes them think at a higher level. You don't have to use every option, but you should have some other options there. So those would just be a couple of quick ones. Those are awesome. Those are awesome examples. And just just a note, yeah, you're killing me now. I already get those multiple choice ones. A, B, A, B, and C, all of the above, none of the above. No, don't make me think like that. That's a <laughs> if, if you've got an A, B, or C, all the students are doing is guessing. That is all they are doing. Good guessers score better than bad guessers do. you got to have something else. You know, to me, if you really want to look at deep understanding, multiple choice isn't necessarily the best way to go. But what I'm very aware of and was aware of as a teacher is our state test was multiple choice. And if I didn't do multiple choice, I was actually doing a disservice to my kids. If I did all these great performance based assessments and then they had to take a state test that was multiple choice, they weren't ready. So I had not done my job. So I'm fine with multiple choice. I'm just telling you to make them make them a little more rigorous than they are that's awesome because that's uh i mean you bring up a, such a great point right there which is if the test the high stakes tests are going to be multiple choice at some point you better be um helping them understand how you read those questions and how you respond to those questions as opposed to just going eeny meeny miny mo," you know and uh um or whatever the version they say today so right. <laughs> 
<laughs> Good stuff. I, this has been awesome. Uh, Barbara, we're getting ready to close. If, uh, if Before we do that, if someone wanted to learn more, where would you send them? Uh, best place to go is my website. It's sort of a one-stop shop. It's uh, barbarablackburnonline.com. Uh, there's information on my books. There's free resources. Uh, if you're a leader, go to Just for Leaders. Uh, if you want other kinds of free resources, there's book downloads, there's articles, there's podcasts. I linked here because you always have such good podcasts with me. I mean, there's so many different things. Uh, there's information about my professional development and how I do different things uh, because I do a lot of training, but I do a lot of coaching and, and working on school change and how do we really raise the level of instruction. So all of that kind of stuff, uh, you can contact me through the website. It's even got my phone number on there. You can call me. People are always amazed that I answer my own emails and I answer my own phone calls. So <laughs> you can get to me anything you need. You can get to me through the website. That's awesome. And I'll have that in the show notes. And uh, for those of you who listen um, to this on your mobile, f on your phone, it's so much e easier with those smartphones. You just, you just scroll down and sure enough, there are my show notes. And right there, her website will be linked and you go right to it. And uh, good stuff. And uh, for those of you who are on the, the desktop, you have them there too. So that's good stuff. But uh, I'll have it all in the show notes. Good. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I got to say, Barbara, um, is that uh, it's always fun talking with you. And I got to have one more question. Um, it, and it goes like this. If you were presenting on rigor in the K through five math and science classroom um, or K or six through 12, whichever, whichever, you know, one you want to scenario you want to do, or you want to do both scenarios. Um, and that audience is comprised of those level of teachers, math and science teachers. What's one important concept that you would like them to take away? Do you have that one thing that if they're going to listen to you talk and you're talking about math and science in the classroom and you're talking about rigor, what's that one thing you want to want them to walk away thinking about? You know, I'm going to give you two. I can't, I can't get yeah. down to one. No um, so I'm going to take uh, author's license and go with two. One is, you absolutely can make a difference in your students' lives by increasing their rigor in instruction. And two, you can do it without throwing everything away. So those are my two. I love it. I love it. That's cool. And that's that's good stuff. And I think I think that can work in so many situations. <laughs> they they walk away thinking those things. So um, good stuff. Uh, thank you for sharing. And Barbara, it was awesome talking with you today. Rigor in the K through five math and science classroom, and rigor in the six through twelve math and science classroom. Yeah, just they're awesome and they're practical and they're amazing tools um, that they can use in their classrooms. Or read a little bit today and put them right to work tomorrow. And uh, it's so cool. That's what I love about your writing. So wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you very much. I always love coming on and talking to your folks. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. 
Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.